In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Well, how do you do, young Willie McBride? Do you mind if I sit here by your graveside and rest for a while neath your warm summer sun? I've been walking all day and I'm nearly done. And I see by your gravestone you were only 19 when you joined the great fallen in 1916. Well, I hope you died quick, and I hope you died clean. Oh, Willie McBride, was it slow and obscene? Did they beat the drum slowly? Did they play the fife lowly? Did they sound the death march as they lowered you down? Did the band play the last post and chorus? And did the pipes play the flowers of the forest? Good morning. morning. The Lord be with you. Now, I know what you must be thinking. Oh, with Father Duncan on vacation, John Francis turns his sermon into an Irish folk ballad session. (laughs) With the English away, the Irish... We'll play. (laughs) But Father Duncan himself, Father Duncan himself brought this song back into my memory last week. It is a song that both he and I hold close to our hearts because it's a remembrance song for the fallen on this memorial of Armistice Day. My great-grandfather, also from Northern Ireland, I'm not sure if I mentioned that I'm Irish. He was among those who fought But he survived the Great War, at least physically, shell-shocked and shattered. He came back from the front lines. He was cannon fodder that somehow the cannons missed. The total number of military and civilian casualties in World War I was about 40 million. Estimates range from 15 to 19 million deaths and about 23 million wounded military personnel, ranking it among the deadliest conflicts one of the deadliest conflicts in human history. They gave all they had. So for those multitudes slain and wounded in body and mind, let us pause in silence for a brief second to honor them. They gave all they had. Clunk, clang, Clang, clunk. The unmistakable sound of money. Large, thick, valuable coins dropping and tossing and hitting the side of the metallic offering box in the temple of Jerusalem. Clunk, clang. Another handful of heavy gold and silver coinage hurled into the box by a scribe, a temple lawyer, a religious authority of the temple, putting on a big to-do flaunting his hefty contribution to the temple. For him, this is the first century equivalent of making it rain. Clunk, clang, the sound of precious currency worth its weight in gold rings through the temple for all to hear. But just then, 
through the din and clatter and tintinabulation of large sums of cash clunking and clanging came a faint and high-pitched singular ding. Then one more. Ding. The sound of two tiny coins released into the offering box from the hands of a widow. Jesus saw her. Jesus heard the ting, and he made it his business to point her out to the scribes and the authorities. Now, by the time the curtain opens on this famous scene, Jesus has already made his triumphal entry, which was more like street theater or political satire than ticker tape victory parades. Then Jesus ends those festivities by going to the temple to case the joint. He returns the next day, makes a whip, turns over a few tables, infuriates religious authorities, and sends the whole lot of everybody else into a tizzy. But on this day, he enters the temple for a third time. Authorities conspire to trap him, but they find themselves confounded instead. Enter the scribes, for whom Jesus reserves his most caustic critique. Beware of the scribes. They like to go around in long robes, saying long prayers. Here's the bit that I want to focus on. They devour the houses of widows as a pretext. They recite lengthy prayers. These words sting. Jesus then takes a seat facing the treasury. Now, the Greek word for facing that is used here in Mark is ketonanti. And it literally means to stand in opposed to, to face. In some conjugations, it means to stand opposed over and against. So we see the attitude and posture of Jesus as he ketonante faces the treasury. Just a few days earlier, Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple. Not because the temple was some sacred place that had suddenly become profaned by money. No, it was because of the money changers, because of their unfair practices and exploitation of poor people. You see, the temple was an economic institution as well as a religious one. And Jesus was scandalized and moved to empathy by the exploitation of the poor as they attempted to participate in the religious life of Israel. Jesus' outrage then comes into sharper focus as he sits facing the temple treasury. He publicly outs the scribes, the temple lawyers, as not only hypocrites, but also as abusers of their power and fiduciary authority. He says, they devour the houses of widows. Whatever does this mean? Mark could be pointing out here what some biblical scholars indicate was pervasive in this culture of the time. The temple scribes were notorious for embezzlement and abuse. Or Mark could be referring to the costs of the temple paying for sacrifices of atonement at unfair costs that consumed the resources of society's poorest. In either case, Jesus exposes the false piety of the scribes for what it is, 
thinly veiled economic opportunism for the sake of self-aggrandizement. They were solely concerned with their social status, their political capital, and their privilege. These are motivations which fly in the face of what Jesus' central mantra always was and is. The last shall be first, and greatest is the one who serves. He attributes the affluence of the scribes to the practice of devouring widows' houses. This most likely refers to the legally sanctioned trusteeship common at the time. See, estates of deceased men were given to scribes to arbitrate because women weren't allowed to be in control of their own affairs. The scribe would administer the the estate, and he would receive a percentage of the estate as compensation. It's the old one for you, one, two for me. Two for you, two, three, four for me. You know that old chestnut. Jesus says she gave all she had. One translation renders that phrase in an even more startling tone. It says, she gave her whole life. Jesus, in his pointedly ironic way with words, says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has given more into the treasury than all the others who gave out of their surplus. More than the others, Jesus? What do you mean? Could it be that God's math is not like our math? I think we know this is true when we see that five loaves and two fish can feed 5,000. We know this is true when we look at marriage, for example, and we see that God says somehow one plus one equals one. Or in the Trinity, where it mysteriously says one plus one plus one equals one. But here we see something different functioning. God's math is not like our math. God's economy is not like ours. God's giving is very often not like our giving. You see, God's math is based on abundance and not scarcity. God's economy is rooted in mutuality of relationships and not in every man for himselfness. I just coined that phrase. God's giving, when God gives, it is marked by sacrificial love, not giving out of surplus. Why did these religious authorities exploit, embezzle, store up wealth for themselves, and build their social cachet all while under the guise of religiosity? Was it just how things went? Just part of the culture? Did it happen slowly to each one of them over a lifetime? Or was it just in the air that they all breathed? I believe that these men were guilty of a belief in scarcity. They likely had other character flaws too, don't get me wrong, like deceitfulness, hubris, self-righteousness. But what if they absorbed and acquired so much for themselves and then flaunted it because they were afraid that one day there wouldn't be enough, that one day it would all dry up? What if instead of acting 
in that such way? What if they had remembered their Bibles, where God promises abundance, where God promises that our cups will overflow, where God promises that he would open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing greater than we can possibly hold, if only we would trust him? What if they remembered their Bibles where God says that it is our responsibility as his children and his people to protect the orphan and the widow, to not exploit the stranger or the poor, to practice mutuality, and to bring those in the margins back into the center of fellowship, where God promises to bless those who break the yoke of oppression and to untie the cords of injustice. What if they had remembered in their Bibles and enacted it? If they had followed through and enacted what their Torah said, there never would have been this poor widow tossing her last penny into the collection box. She would, have been, she would not have had to been compelled to give her whole life. So as I read and reread this famous Bible story, I couldn't get it out of my head the connection between Jesus' indictment and critique, they devour the houses of widows. And then in the very next flash scene comes a widow. I think something overarching is happening here. I, I, I don't know. I think it's contrary to popular belief, but I don't believe that Jesus was praising or admiring this woman's devotion, even though she was clearly devoted. I don't believe that this scene is Mark's way of juxtaposing the arrogance and hypocrisy of the elite with the blessedness and nobility and sanctity of the, the poor. No, I, I think this poor widow left her last penny in the temple. It was all she had to live on. This is the same Jesus who a second ago indicts the, Pharise- the scribes and the Pharisees for saying that they have devoured the homes of the poor and widows. So how could he possibly be pleased with someone impoverished giving the last that they had? I don't know that this is a text, a passage about God loves a cheerful giver. I believe this is an invitation to transformation. I believe it's an invitation for so- social transformation and personal transformation. This is an invitation to kingdom giving because when God gives, it's out of sacrificial love. Hours from his passion, Jesus laments the destitution of this woman who has no money for food or anything else to make her oblation. Jesus is opposed to mistreatment of widows and devouring the houses of widows. Of that we can be sure. Yet he tells us that this woman gave more than all of the others because she gave all that she had. The widow may have felt some shame at the impossible situation she faced, but Jesus instead exposes the shameful system that put her there. The lesson that we are meant to get from this text, my friends, I believe, is that we give sacrificially like God gives. We give out of love and sacrifice 
And that is a sign that everything belongs to God anyway. It's all his. In this sense, we hear the words echoing of Jesus. When we give sacrificially, it is a sign that we are leaning into the abundance of God rather than clinging to our own belief in scarcity. No, friends, it is not glorious to be an impoverished person who gives her last two coins. No more glorious is it to die in World War I by mustard gas. With the widow in Mark's story, our tendency can be to valorize the woman or to sentimentalize her struggle, but we're not to pity them. We grieve their plight, and with righteous anger next to Jesus, we stand facing it, and we challenge it, and we challenge those systems as they intrude into our own lives as well. So what does this look like for us today? Wrapping it up, I'd like to give you a picture of it. Here at St. Paul's, we are a people who give to God's work in the world sacrificially. Yes, we are. We are people here at St. Paul's who know that the Spirit of the Lord is upon us at this hour to transform the world around us because he has called us to preach the good news to the poor, but not just to preach the good news and not just to ponder it, but to enact it, to sow into kingdom giving, to sow into kingdom principles, and to sow into the work of the kingdom in the towns around us. Part of my role here, friends, is to establish deeper and facilitate deeper partnerships with our sister churches in places like Plainfield and Elizabeth and Linden and Union. And how wondrous would it be if we built the kingdom of heaven together in the surrounding areas? To deepen solidarity and service, to deepen mutuality and partnerships, to create opportunities for more creative and beautiful ways to build his kingdom together. This is part of what we are seeding into when we seed into St. Paul's. Beauty, creativity, justice, service, seeding into the signs of the kingdom and building that kingdom where one day there won't have to be any more war, no more poverty, no more strangers, no more orphans, no more widows, no more tears. They gave all they had. She gave all she had. What will we give as a sign that it all belongs to God? Amen.